0: So we've been on a bit of a journey this month, a bit of a, of a roller coaster as we have been re-examining some of the assumptions uh, that we've always been held to be true about the Bible as uh, good evangelicals in an evangelical community. We've kind of been rethinking or at least I've been proposing a rethinking of how we understand, what we understand this book to be. You see, the evangelical community has always affirmed, as we as a church affirm, as I as a person affirm, that the Bible is God's book, that it is a divine book 100% of the way. And because that's true, because that's been an understanding of the evangelical community, we've made certain assumptions about what kind of book the Bible is is supposed to be. If God is the author, then the book should be, reflect what God is like. And since God, for example, this is what we've been talking about in particular, since God um, knows everything and never makes a mistake and never tells a lie, the Bible, therefore, as his book, must be factually accurate in everything that it reports, right down to the tiniest details of science and history. What we've been exploring over the last couple of weeks is that when you read the Bible that way, it creates certain tensions in certain texts, in certain um, things that you encounter in the pages of Scripture. Moments when the text doesn't appear to be factually accurate in a scientific or historical way, at least the way we understand accuracy in the 21st century. The question has been, what do we do with that? And so what I've been proposing over the course of this month is that we we tweak our understanding of what the scripture is just a little bit. But instead of thinking of the scriptures as only a divine book, which we do, we affirm that as a divine book. Uh, somebody uh, asked me this last week, what does Southridge really believe about the Bible? I'll tell you what we really believe. Second Timothy chapter 3 exactly where we started this series, that all Scripture is God-breathed, that God breathed the Scripture out of the deepest part of His Spirit. It has its origin in Him, and He breathes the Scriptures into our spirit. He breathes His life and His thoughts into us in this divine act of spiritual CPR, where through the Holy, Script, the Holy Scriptures, by the Holy Spirit, spiritually dead people like us come alive. In the way that scripture teaches and rebukes the way that we think. In the way it corrects us and trains us in the way that we live. And we slowly be formed as individuals and as a community into the image of Christ. Fully equipped for every good thing he wants us to do. To partner with him to reflect the goodness, truth, and beauty of his love into a world that desperately needs him. That's what we believe the Bible to be. What I've been proposing this month is that the best way to understand how God breathes out his scriptures may just be that the Bible is not only a divine book, but it's also a human book, written by ancient people who lived in ancient cultures and spoke ancient languages and had ancient understandings and ancient perspectives on the world. And God, instead of overriding their humanness to make a perfect book, God co-opted their humanness. He allowed their humanness to emerge on the page in order to produce a book that perfectly accomplishes God's purposes of forming us into the image of Christ. And so for me, it is not troubling when I see statements that don't appear to be scientifically accurate because I just think these are ancient authors who have ancient understandings of science. And this is sort of what we've been exploring. What would the humanness of Scripture mean to how we read this book. Now, I want to say this. I want to be really clear about this. I don't need you to agree with me about this. I genuinely don't. If you're somebody who doesn't experience the same kind of tensions that I experience when I read the scriptures, or if you're somebody who is emotionally content with the way that you've reconciled some of those tensions in your spirit, then please don't feel like I'm pressuring you to change your mind. I, you don't need to. Um, I'm perfectly happy thankful that you have a perspective, a theology of scripture that makes sense to you. And quite honestly, that's the perspective that we're talking about, you know, that we're talking about refining is the one that I grew up with. And I'm so thankful that I grew up in a community like this one that taught me to love the Bible in the deepest possible way and to hold it in the highest possible regard. That's transformed. I am who I am today because I have been trained to have this love for the scriptures, And so if that's you and you're not struggling with this, you're struggling with what I'm saying about the Bible, um, then my challenge to you would just be to say, um, I, I want us to be able to open our minds to accept the possibility that there are other ways to look at the Scriptures. That other Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people can think about Scripture differently than we do, and we can still live in loving community with each other and continue the dialogue and the debate so that we can all grow in our understanding of Christ. On the flip side, if you're here and you have experienced these tensions, and they haven't been relieved for you, then I hope this series has been a, a breath of fresh air, as many of you have expressed to me that it has, and I'm really, really grateful for that, that, that this series is breathing new life into some people's love for the Bible, and that's wonderful. Well, this morning, we're uh, turning a page, and we're no longer looking at the same kind of issue that we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks, what you could call issues with, quote-unquote, inerrancy, you know, this belief that the Bible doesn't have any errors whatsoever, and this morning, we're kind of taking a shift, and we're looking at related issue that could be called the issue of consistency. This belief that the evangelical community has had, that the Bible is absolutely consistent in everything that it teaches from beginning to end. Um, that when the Bible ex- addresses a theological issue, it always basically says roughly the same thing. So that God has clearly communicated consistently what he thinks Uh, From the beginning to end of scripture in a consistent way. Because if God knows everything and God never changes and God never changes his mind. Then it's made sense that what God would say about the same subject would be the same. From the beginning to the end of scripture. And that belief gets paired with this belief that I mentioned a couple weeks ago. Called the perspicuity of scripture. Now a couple weeks ago. I called it the perspicuity, I misspoke, and I know that troubled many of you, so this is my formal apology. The perspicuity of scripture refers to this idea that a a literate person can sit down with the scriptures and read it in their own language and easily understand the plain sense of what God is trying to say. That's the belief. So what we have is this conviction that when you come to the Bible, which is God's book, that God has communicated clearly and consistently from beginning to end what he thinks about any topic the Bible addresses in a way that we can easily understand. Now the challenge that I have in processing that kind of conviction is that it just doesn't seem to play out that way in our experience with the Bible. You would expect that if God clearly and consistently communicated exactly the same thing about what he believes on any given topic from the beginning to the end of scripture and we are able to just sit down and understand the plain sense of what God is trying to communicate, you would assume the conclusion of that sort of reality would be widespread agreement about what the Bible says about everything. Because God has been consistent and clear and we've been able to understand. And the truth of the matter is that our actual experience of Scripture in the church is that it is pretty much the exact opposite of that. That what we have is widespread disagreement about what God says about pretty much everything. A sociologist by the name of Christian Smith, who is an evangelical Christian, wrote a book called The Bible Made Impossible. And Christian Smith points out that that not only is that true... But what is also true is that the more a community vigorously insists that they are Bible-based, the greater the number of disagreements in the community and the more divisive the disagreements are. The way Christian Smith illustrates this, actually, is by um, talking about a, a book series that the evangelical community has produced over the years called The Three Views or Four Views or Five Views books about the Bible and basically what the publishers do is they take a a theological topic and they contact three scholars or four scholars or five scholars who all disagree with each other about what the Bible says about that topic and they get them to write an article about what they believe and then they get them to criticize all the other articles and point out why those people are stupid and and they're right and so you end up with these books that present three different views or four different views or five different views about the same topic of Scripture it's kind of turning doctrinal disagreement into a bit of a virtue, right? Well, the, the reality is that Christian Smith, at the time that he published his book, listed the titles in that series uh, that had been published at that time. I didn't do any further research. But at that time, he noted 40 books that had been communi- where there were at least three views or four views or five views that ought to be considered about what God is trying to say in Scripture. And they're not small topics. Let me just read you the list of the topics of these books. They deal with the atonement, baptism, God, church governance, hell, divorce, salvation, Christ, women in ministry, eternal security, revelation, divine foreknowledge, the Lord's supper, predestination, the millennium, war, the end times, miraculous gifts, God in time, Canaanite genocide, theology, psychology, science, evangelism, rapture, God's will, the New Testament use of the Old Testament, creation, the historical Jesus worship, apologetics in the church and state. Only those issues are addressed (laughs) at the time of that writing. Disagreement about pretty much everything and not small matters. Big, big matters. In fact, I did a little bit of math with this and kind of calculated based on whether there were three views or four views or five views just how many theological options are being presented in those 40 books. If you picked one, position from every one of those books that you felt resonated with your spirit and you constructed kind of your theology on those 40 issues, you are picking your theological position, which is one out of, get this number, 17,592,186,000,000 different possibilities and combinations just from those 40 topics just if you consider the views contained in the books and not the ones excluded. And yet we have this conviction that God speaks consistently and clearly from beginning to end, and it's just easy to pick up the scriptures and understand exactly what he's trying to say. It just doesn't work that way. And the question is, why doesn't it work that way? In my experience, my conviction is this. It doesn't work that way because Scripture's harder to understand than sometimes we have said that it is. It doesn't work that way because the scriptures aren't always as clear as we wish they would be. And it doesn't work that way because I believe that the scriptures don't always teach the same things about the topics that scripture addresses. I believe that different scriptures hold divergent theological opinions about the same topics from time to time. And I could illustrate this using any number of examples. I could talk about hell and resurrection and the afterlife, the way that belief changes through the course of Scripture. I could talk about the, the Jewish perspective of Messiah and how that evolves. I could talk about um, whether there's one God or many gods because there are Scriptures that talk about both realities. But I thought, in order to explore this, I thought I would pick a topic that I think arouses sympathy in all of us, a topic where I think at some level, um, any person with a heart made of flesh in this room, in any of our locations, would actually kind of wish the Bible is wrong. And that's the issue of the Canaanite genocide. Or the issue, uh, the general Old Testament issue of God's penchant for killing people. Because it shows up in many places in the Old Testament. Uh, you're six chapters into the entire Bible and God is wiping out the entire population of the earth with the exception of eight people. In the next book of the Bible, God d- kills every firstborn living being in Egypt and then drowns the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And the stories keep on coming. Actually, a, a website called commonsenseatheism.com Devoted a whole web page to the violence of God in the Old Testament, and they cited 20 examples of ways in which God either committed murder or genocide or commanded somebody else to do it. And actually, as you look at the page, it turns out to be way more than 20 examples. But the most common, the most famous example would be the, the God commanding the Israelites to commit genocide on the occupants of the land of Palestine in order that they might take that territory for themselves. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, these are God's instructions. He says, however, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites as the Lord has commanded you. Otherwise, they'll teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods and you'll sin against the Lord your God. God says to them, if you want to be faithful to following me, you have to ethnically cleanse the entire land of Palestine. Anybody who is not troubled by that uh, needs a heart check. It's no wonder that An atheist like Richard Dawkins would describe God this way. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. A little bit of a dig there. He's jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. The, the struggle isn't Richard Dawkins alone. Christians throughout history have experienced the tension of some of the things the Bible says about what God is like. In fact, in the earliest centuries of the church, the church fathers refused to take these passages as historically literally true because they so violently objected to what these passages communicated about God. And so they said, this can't be literally true. This has to be an allegory for something. Christians throughout the ages have tried in different ways to reconcile this perspective of God with the perspective of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. And basically, all of those efforts boil down to finishing the sentence in one way or another. um, God was right and good for commanding genocide because... How would you finish that sentence? God was right and good for commanding genocide because... Some people say because he's the almighty and he can do whatever he wants. Fair enough. That's not a God that I want to worship. Some people have said because God is good, so whatever God does is good. God commanded genocide, therefore the genocide is good. I can't follow that logic. Some people have said, well, that was just the culture of the time. That's just the way things were. And my point is exactly, and that's the point I'm going to make in just a minute, but... But why is God beholden to the culture? Why couldn't God deal with it differently? Why couldn't God have just appeared in the middle of Palestine and said boo and scared all the Canaanites away so that the Israelites could just walk in and take over the land without shedding a drop of blood? Then you'd only have a mass migration of a refugee population which is marginally better than genocide. Some people have said, well, because these were the worst sinners ever. The answer is no, they weren't. By all accounts, archaeology says that these people were exactly like all the people who lived around them, who didn't get genocided. Um, Some folks have said, yeah, but okay, so the Bible says that about God, but that's not the only thing the Bible says about God. The Bible also says that he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, extending forgiveness to a thousand generations of those who love him. Absolutely the Bible says that. A, it says that to the Israelites, not to anybody else. And B, that's a little bit like saying, yeah, my husband tortures the neighborhood kids, but he's really nice to our kids. So all in all, he's a good guy. Right? We have to be honest and say, this is Armenia all over again. This is the Holocaust all over again. This is the Soviet famine. This is... Darfur, this is Rwanda, this is the Camerouge, this is ISIS. And everywhere that genocide happens in our world, ethnic cleansing takes place, Christians rightly and justly condemn it. And then because we're beholden to some idea about scripture, when it shows up in the pages of scripture, we for some reason want to condone it and say that it was right and good because God did it. A kind of logic, by the way, through the course of Christian history has led the church into the crusades and the inquisition and the conquest of the new world which included ethnic cleansing and cultural genocide on the scale of which we've only been learning more in the last few months. I think there's got to be a better way to think about these passages of scripture. And here's what I would want to propose that the church has always had available to it a theological mechanism, a belief, a conviction that would help us understand what 's going on here, but we 've been hesitant to use it in this particular instance, and the doctrine is the doctrine of progressive revelation by which we mean that god 's unfolding of the revelation of himself. Um, continues on through the entire narrative arc of Scripture so that the revelation of God by the end of Scripture is fuller and more complete and clearer and truer than what might have been true at the beginning of Scripture. Progressive revelation means as things go on, things get clearer. And I believe that that's true. I believe we've just been hesitant to own the flip side of that conviction, which is as you get closer to the beginning, things maybe get muddier. But what if progressive revelation is actually true? And what if as God began to reveal himself to his people, he was content to reveal himself to people who were 100% ancient human beings, who lived with an ancient perspective on God? All across the ancient world, the only way anybody knew how to think about God was through a tribal warrior mentality. That our God is the greatest among all the gods, which is a perspective the Bible represents, that there are other gods and our God is greater. Now, the Bible is ultimately a monotheistic document, and Judaism is monotheistic, and Christianity is monotheistic. There's only one God, but at times the Bible talks about God being greater than all the other gods, because that's how tribal warrior God Culture people thought that our God is the greatest of all the gods, and the way they were going to demonstrate that our God is the supreme God is when our nation destroys your nation. That's how that works. And so the ancient Israelites, who were ancient people, who were having an encounter with a God who was beginning to reveal himself to them, had only one category through which to think about what God was like, and that is the God of the ancient tribal warriors. They, they weren't modern Western 21st century conservative voting or hybrid driving evangelical Christians. They didn't have uh, the kind of understanding that we have of God. That was the only way that they knew to think about God. And so that's how they wrote about God. The answer, what, if, what if, like last week we talked about, what if the way the Israelites told these stories reflected less historical accuracy about actually what factually happened on the ground and was more motivated by the desire to inspire faith in the people like we talked about last week what if the writings of the ancient israelites was was more like the misha inscription that we talked about last week than it is like a modern history where misha the king of moab says i completely exterminated israel and uses the same word that's used in the Bible, that Israel's supposed to do the Canaanites. Misha says, I completely genocided Israel. Which just wasn't a true statement, because Israel still exists, and Moab doesn't. Um, But he was exaggerating for the sake of creating faith in the people who could place their faith in him as their king, and in their God, Kimosh. And what if Israel was writing their history in exactly the same way? What if archaeology, as we talked about last week, was actually correct and the conquest of Palestine didn't happen exactly the way the Bible describes it then you know if we allow the ancient authors to be ancient authors which ancient cultures and ancient understandings and ancient perspectives do you know what the answer to the question why did God command genocide becomes it becomes he didn't they believed that he did because that was the only way they knew how to think about God but he didn't, because that's not what God is like. And I know that's a radical statement to say that something the Bible says about God may not be true and accurate. But in the words of, of the author Pete Enns, who wrote a book called The Bible Tells Me So, Pete Enns says, I would rather deal with the implications of a Bible that is wrong on that point than the implications of a Bible that perfectly describes God as a, as a genocidal maniac. And I wholeheartedly agree. And I know that my preferences, what I would prefer to be true, don't make something true or not true. But for me, this is a much more reasonable way to understand why we have passages like this about God in the Bible when we know that God is not like that. And actually, over the course of the biblical narrative, God begins to progressively reveal to Israel that He is not that kind of God. Fast forward. You know, 500 years, uh, and it's 700 BCE, and Israel's enemy is no longer um, the Canaanites. Israel's enemy are now the Assyrians, who are attacking them from the capital city of Nineveh. And a prophet named Nahum in Nahum chapter one verse fourteen says this: "The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh." You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temples of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are vile. Seems like a pretty tribal warrior perspective of God. Yet you flip back two books and you have the book of Jonah writing roughly at the same time. The last verse in the book of Jonah is God saying this. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Shouldn't I care? Shouldn't I have compassion for these people in which there are 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? God says, shouldn't I care about this city? I don't want to destroy this city. I want them to repent so that I can embrace them and bless them. That's what I want to do. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann calls that a counter-testimony. The author of the book of Jonah pushing back against this tribal warrior mentality of God and saying God isn't like that. Fast forward another 700 years and you arrive at the life and the person of Jesus. Who it says in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The writer of Hebrews says, you know, in the past, God talked to us through prophets in a whole variety of ways. But, and he intends some kind of contrast here, but now it's different because God is communicating to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the exact representation of his being. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. So, what does Jesus have to say about this genocidal maniac God of the Old Testament? He says in Matthew chapter 5, 43, He says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. Jesus says, you want to be like God, love your enemies, bless them, pray for them, do good to them. Jesus comes and he reveals the heart of a God who would rather die for his enemies than kill him. And the Bible says, that's exactly what God is like. That's what God is like. And any passage of scripture that you might read that paints a differing portrait of what God is like has to be made to reconcile with the person of Jesus who is the exact representation of God's being. That's why I say that scripture progressively reveals the truth about who God is until eventually we arrive at the person of Jesus who shows us exactly what God is like. which means we don't take every statement in Scripture to be equally true and equally weighted in terms of describing uh, anything. Really, we have to wrestle with it against the backdrop of Jesus. So what does that mean for how we read the Scriptures? It means a couple things, I think. Number one, I think it means we have to let go of our psychological addiction to certainty. We have this compulsion that we have to be absolutely certain about everything we believe. Dot all our I's and cross all our T's and nail it all down so we can be safe and secure in the knowledge of what we believe because we've somehow become convinced that the strength of a person's faith is proportional to the strength of their certainty about what they believe. And that is just not true. The strength of a person's faith is directly proportional to the degree to which they're willing to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Psychological certainty is not a virtue when it comes to faith. In fact, those of us who prize psychological certainty about everything that we believe are actually cutting ourselves off from the possibility to grow. If you never experience the cognitive dissonance of being stretched and having to struggle and wrestle with an idea, you will never increase your understanding about anything. And to me, I believe that it's worth it to more deeply understand this all the time. So rather than this rather simplistic mentality that says the bible says it i believe it that settles it that's not willing to wrestle i believe god is calling to us to wrestle with him in scripture there's a story about abram's grandson in the old testament his name's jacob And Jacob's ambushed in the middle of the night by an angel, the story goes. And the two of them grapple until dawn when Jacob has the angel in a headlock. And the angel says, you got to let me go. And and Jacob says, not until you bless me. And the angel blesses him and says, I'm going to change your name. You'll no longer be Jacob the deceiver. Now you will be Israel, which means he who wrestles with God. The angel blessed Jacob because he wrestled with God. I think that's what God wants from us. You read the Jewish commentaries, and honestly, the Jewish commentaries <clears throat> are not written to come to certain answers about things. They talk about scripture, and then there'll be the section that says, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and draws this conclusion, Rabbi such-and-so says that, and draws the opposite conclusion, and then it says nothing. The two opinions are just left to sit there side by side, and in, in Jewish perspective on the scripture, it's actually the debate that gets canonized. That's the point. You're supposed to wrestle with this. (coughs) Greg Boyd, who uh, we showed a video a few weeks ago from Greg Boyd, he wrote a book called Benefit of the Doubt, which everybody who struggled with doubt should read. And Greg tells the story, he's talking about this passage, and he tells the story about how he and his grandson will wrestle around on the floor in his house. And he says, I can beat my grandson any anytime that I want, but I choose not to. And he said, and the reason is that when we wrestle, we bond. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to wrestle with what we find in the scripture. Not the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it. But to grapple with what we find there. To try and penetrate through to what is really true about what God is revealing about himself. Now the truth is we're not wrestling in the dark. Because we have the person of Jesus that is the final arbiter of what we believe to be true about what the Bible is saying. Right, historian David Steinmetz said that reading the Bible is like reading a detective novel the second time. See, the first time you read a detective novel, you're confused, you get thrown off, you you draw all sorts of faulty conclusions, you think the maid did it, then you think the grandfather did it, and then on the last page, surprise, surprise, the doctor did it, and you never saw it coming. Right, you read the same detective novel a second time, it's a completely different experience. Because you know how the story ends, You know where this is going. So you see the end from the beginning and you're not fooled and you don't go down blind alleys and, and you don't get um, the, the stuff that seemed confusing at first now makes perfect sense. And the stuff that you thought made sense the first time around you recognize is now nonsense. And the stuff the subtle clues that you missed now leap off the page with significance because you know where the story is going and david steinmetz says reading the bible is like that um spoiler alert for those who haven't made it to the end jesus did it okay jesus did it jesus is The way in which we gauge, the way in which we orient orient ourselves to the truth of the story. Jesus is the way we gauge what is true. That if you, Jesus came to be the exact representation of who God is. And so if you read a passage of scripture that makes you think that God is something other than what you see in Jesus, you're not finished wrestling yet. Jesus came to say that the whole point of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament of the Bible, the whole point is to guide us into a life of love. And so if your reading of scripture takes you down any road that isn't love, you're not done wrestling yet. Jesus came to say that the only enemy that God has is the capital E enemy, the enemy of our souls, the forces of darkness at work in the world. Not any flesh and blood creature is your enemy. So if your reading of the Bible is tempting you to hate another person, you're not done wrestling yet. Jesus did it, He's the end. He's the surprising twist. He's where the story lands on the last page. And now when we read the scripture, we have to read every single sentence in terms of what God reveals to be exactly true in the person of Jesus Christ. That we fix our eyes on him the author and perfecter of our faith and he is the one who will guide us into the understanding of God into the fullest, deepest, truest, clearest revelation of who God is. That's why Jesus is at the center. There's been a tough series so far for some people. We've said things that I think have stretched everybody. We've said things that have rattled some cages. We have said things that have caused some folks to wonder whether we as a church aren't completely going off the deep end or sliding down the slippery slope of liberalism, and we're not. We're just trying to read the scriptures and keep Jesus at the center of it. And so as we close, I want us to close as a community across all three of our locations, uh, performing an exercise together that we don't often do. I don't know if we've ever done in Southridge's entire history. But I want us across all three locations to stand together as this sermon comes to a close and we are going to recite together as a community the formulation of the core essence of Christianity that has existed from the first centuries of the church's history that Christians have been reciting for literally millennia to remind themselves about what is really core and matters and what is really central and true about Christianity. We're going to stand together in all of our locations. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed. And as you do, I want you to look around and I want you to see yourself standing in solidarity with people on every side who think differently than you, believe differently than you, who pursue Christ differently than you, but who are on exactly the same journey that you are the journey of pressing forward into trying to understand this God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ so that we can be transformed into the people of love that he has created us to be and stand shoulder to shoulder with his son and with each other in reflecting the goodness, truth, and beauty of his love into the world because that is what scripture is trying to create us to be. Let's stand together and recite the creed. It's a community.